Amen. You may be seated this morning. Middle schoolers are dismissed at this time in our service. They'll be going upstairs to the youth room as they will be going with Luke up there. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our study of Luke's gospel. So if you'll turn to chapter 23, we'll begin reading in about verse 33. If you're visiting with us at Calvary Chapel, we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we've been in Luke's gospel for over a year, and so we happen to find ourselves at this time in chapter 23 as we're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and then we'll move into chapter 24 when we get into December. I, I think it's no accident that we'll, we will be talking about the resurrection of Jesus during the time of Christmas season. It's not that we have our seasons mixed up, but there was a reason that Jesus was born, right? He was born that he would come to die. And we'll look at chapter 24 and finish up before Christmas, and then we'll start a new book in January. But today, we do want to be in chapter 23. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Jerry's got some in the back in his hand. We got some in the front platform. But you recall as we opened up chapter 23 that Jesus going through a series of six trials in chapter 22 that he had three trials before the religious leaders. And then as we moved into chapter 23, three trials before the civil leaders as the council would bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate on three different occasions during those trials that Pontius Pilate had declared him to be innocent. I find no fault in this man. Jesus should have been acquitted, but here is Pilate giving in to the cries of the crowd that was crying out, crucify Jesus, and we want Barabbas to be released. We know that Jesus would be, go before Herod, the Tetrarch. Herod, even though he did not take Jesus seriously, would declare him to be innocent as well, has done nothing deserving of death. But as we saw last week, Jesus then, as Pilate, He's conflicted, he's afraid of the crowds, he's on a political hot seat with Tiberius. He doesn't want this thing to get out of hand as he sees the tumult, as one of the gospel writers says, begins to rise up. So he would then condemn Jesus to death. They would take him out, scourge him. They would put a crown of thorns on his head, lacerating his scalp. And then as we read in verse 32, there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. As he makes his way down the narrow streets of Jerusalem, the Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrows, and he is headed to the Damascus gate and to that place of execution. Let's pick up our text at verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, verse 35 tells us. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And so outside of the Damascus gate, a couple city blocks away was the top of Mount Moriah, the same place that Abraham would put the wood of the sacrifice on his only son, Isaac, as they would walk up that hill together there in Genesis chapter 22. 
2,000 years later after that, here's God the Father watching his son with the wood of the sacrifice on his back that he's walking up Mount Moriah through the streets of Jerusalem and to the Damascus Gate. He would fall under the weight of that cross, having been beaten and scourged, um, being up all night. He was so weak he couldn't do that. And we saw that they would compel a man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross and bear the cross of Jesus up the rest of the way to the top of the hill. Now, when you go to Jerusalem today, they have the old city uh, of Jerusalem in the walls that went around it, and they have the Damascus Gate on the north side of the city, and then next to it, they excavated the Damascus Gate that was in place at the time of Jesus. It's very fascinating to go and look at it and to know that Jesus would walk through that gate, and then about two city blocks away is that place of execution that we see. It's called Calvary. Calavera in the Latin. We get the English translation Calvary. The Hebrew tongue Golgotha. It is the place of the skull. Now a thousand years prior to this what happened was on top of Mount Moriah Solomon when he was building the first temple 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 7 tells us that as he was mining for the stones, and you can go there again, you can see Solomon's mines. You can walk in some of the caverns that are right there on top of Mount Moriah. But from the city walls to the top of Mount Moriah, make kind of a canyon as they were digging uh, and mining the stones for the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, it tells us that all the chiseling, all the hammering, all the shaping of the stones was done there in the quarries, which is quite amazing because then they would take the stones, take them to the temple mount, and they would place the stones together. They would fit perfectly there at the temple. But it tells us there is no sound of a chisel or a hammer hammer there at the temple site. It was all done in a quarry. But be that as it may, that what it did is it made a little canyon. And on the north-facing slope, it, there was an impression uh, of a skull that you can still see today, even through uh, 3,000 years nearly uh, of erosion that took place. It is very evident that is there. And we know that there was a major road that passed by. And what the Romans oftentimes would do is they would place crucified victims on the roadsides as a message to the people who are passing by, listen, don't mess with Rome because this is what can happen to you. The scene here is very chaotic. Simon carrying the cross. There are these women that are lamenting. There is the Roman soldiers. And then there are two criminals that are being led with him. And when they would nail Jesus to that cross, those large stakes that would be uh, driven through his hands and into his feet. Again, by the way, they found some recent excavations of crucified victims of some of the cross pieces. And they determined that it was more than just putting the the feet together and and putting a nail through both feet uh, on the front of the cross. What they did was they put the feet on the side of the cross and drove them in this way, which would make the pain much more excruciating for that person hanging on that cross. Of course, crucifixion, where we get our English word excruciating, it was extremely painful. And there Jesus on that cross, he, he would be suffocating. 
And the only way that he could get a breath of air is to push up on those nails that were driven in his feet, probably on the sides, and get a breath of air and then kind of collapse back down again. It was a slow process, uh, those who were on the cross, uh, of dying. And so we see here that um, as we look at this, that uh, as David, even as they would put the cross, slide it in the socket in the ground, and the crucified victims would cry out in great pain. David wrote a thousand years before this in that prophetic psalm in Psalm 22 that they pierce my hands and my feet and all my bones are out of joint. And as they do that, Jesus now dying for the sins of the world. And he is dying for your sins and my sins. Luke tells us, and only Luke records this, that he would say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We know that there are seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Luke uniquely records three of those sayings. Here in verse 34 that we just read, and then in verse 43, surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's amazing that Jesus, even as he is on the cross and he is dying for our sins, he prayed even for those who were executing him asking the Father not to hold this sin against them. They don't know what they are doing. And then Luke briefly tells us that they divided his clothes and cast lots. John gives us more detail. We were told in John chapter 19 that his clothes were divided up into four parts and and they took his tunic, which was woven uh, without seam, and, and they didn't want to tear it. But what they did is they cast lots for it. So the soldiers that crucified Jesus would split up his clothing, as we are told. And when it came to his tunic, his robe, it would be a valuable piece of clothing. Kind of interesting because in Exodus chapter 28, it tells us that the high priest's robe was to be skillfully woven so that it did not tear. Seamless, in other words. And here is our great high priest that they are casting lots for his tunic, for his robe. A fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18, once again fulfilling uh, prophecy concerning Jesus' death, that the soldiers piercing his hands and his feet, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here they are playing games, gambling even as Jesus was dying for their sins. In my years of ministry, There's been a few people that I've talked to that they were at the end of their life. And when I talked to them about Jesus, when I gave them the gospel, they would respond, and I always remember it, I never forget it, that a few times I've had people respond by saying, I'll take my chances. And as I hear that, it just sends a chill down my spine. You'll take your chances because they don't want to come to Christ. They feel like they're a good enough person to get into heaven. Listen, if you're here and you think that you're good enough, you may have people say that that's a good man or a good woman, but here's the truth. None of us are good enough. And that's why Jesus is on this cross dying for our sins because the wages of sin is death. And so as, you know, I hear that, I'll take my chances. I don't want to come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. I pray that none of us that are here in this place has that mentality that I'll gamble with my salvation. I'll take my chances because if you have that mentality, you're going to lose. 
for all eternity if you don't give your life to Jesus Christ and come in faith to receive him and ask for forgiveness. And I pray for you and me as I want to bring it home a little bit closer to us that are Christians that none of us are playing games with our Christianity. Yeah, I go to church because the wife wants me to. Or it's good for my kids. Or I know it's good for me to do once in a while. But you're playing games with your Christianity, doing what you want to do. There's compromise in your life and how you live. You kind of shrug your shoulder and say, I'm not going to take this Christianity thing too serious. I want to live for myself. I want to do my own thing. And if that is anyone, then you need to look at your Savior that is hanging on that cross for you. Don't turn your back on him. But remember that he gave his back to that cat of nine tails because he loves you. And he died for you. Don't shrug your shoulders in apathy, but remember that he would take that cross and bear it on his shoulders, falling under the weight of it because he was going to go to that place of execution for you, with you on his heart and you on his mind to die for you personally and individually. And it shows us as you look at that cross with him there on it, that it declares and proves to us his unsearchable and indescribable and unconditional love that he has for you and for me, even as Paul would write, that he proved his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5. How can we be apathetic? If we trust him with our salvation, can't we trust him with our lives? And again, as we read this portion of scripture, we're probably all, if not most of us, familiar with it. We've read it many times and it can lose its impact. But I pray that as we journey through life, that it would impact us to a greater degree to where we come to the point of, Lord, I don't want to play games with my salvation. I don't want to play games with my walk with you, but I want to be surrendered to you. And I want to live for you and be a light for you. And so Luke tells us all these things that are taking place here at the cross. That in verse 35, that the people stood uh, looking on. Mark records that people who passed by blaspheme him, wagging their heads. What does it mean, wagging their heads? Well, it's just a meaning that they were full of emotion. They're shaking their fist at him and, and you know yelling at him, being very expressive. And the religious leaders snared. The soldiers mocked him. It's interesting what the religious leaders are saying here. He saved others. That's something that they could not deny. Matter of fact, it wasn't long before this time that in Bethany, a few miles from Jerusalem, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it was known as the word spread. It was a mighty miracle. And people were coming to Bethany and the religious leaders heard about it. And John records how the religious leaders were more determined than ever to put Jesus to death. But they couldn't deny that Lazarus, who was dead for four days, came forth from that tomb. He raised the dead. He healed every kind of sickness and disease. He cleansed the lepers. He saved others. They were right when they said that. But then they went on to say, but let him save himself. 
Matthew and Mark records they said himself he cannot save and that's where they were wrong. If he trusted in God, let him deliver him. Because you see, he could have saved himself. He could have delivered himself. You remember that the, they arrested G- Jesus in the garden and Peter pulls out his sword and Jesus said, Peter, put the sword away. I can call down 12 legions of angels. All he had to simply do is speak it. He could have destroyed those soldiers in Jerusalem and the whole world. But if he would have saved himself and delivered himself, you and I would not be saved. We would have no reason to sing here today, you rescued me. And it wasn't the nails that kept him on that cross. It was his love for you. And don't ever forget that. If you ever doubt the love of God, always go back to the cross and see him hanging on that cross for you. And as we continue reading, we read an inscription in verse 38 was also written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now John tells us that the religious leaders were very upset about that. And they went to Pilate. And Pilate, who earlier would not stand up to the religious leaders, he would not stand up to the crowds, he shows some backbone here. And he stands up to the protests of the rulers and he says, what is written is written, so you guys just back off. And then in verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And the others answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Mark just mentions that they crucified two robbers, one on the right and the other on the left, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 53, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Matthew tells us that initially that both these robbers were reviling Jesus. But as time passes here in their suffering, in all this madness, and in all this ugliness, all of a sudden something very beautiful happens. And one of the robbers repents of his abuse of Jesus. He would rebuke the other robber. He said, don't you fear God, seeing that we're under the same condemnation? He goes on to say, we deserve to be put to death. But this man has done nothing wrong. And that robber, right before Jesus breathes his last, in a moment of truth, he realizes that Jesus, not only is he the king of the Jews, he's the king of all kings. And he is the king over a kingdom that's going to last forever. And he ends up throwing himself on the mercy of Jesus and he cried out in a voice that will be heard throughout the centuries, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus would say, before this day is over, you will be with me in paradise. I think that as Jesus said that, that that man, as he's in pain, all of a sudden there's kind of a sigh. And there's a look of peace. This is the gospel right here. That Jesus came to die for sinners. And that is you and that is me. That you and I, even as the Bible declares, 
that when Adam sinned in Romans chapter 5, then sin and death came into the world. And because of sin, and every single one of us have sinned, we're deserving of death because the wages of sin is death. And as we come in faith, confessing that I am a sinner in need of your incredible grace and mercy and forgiveness, Lord, you carried my sins to Calvary and forgive me and remember me. You see, this robber that is crying out to Jesus takes away any excuse that we can make that we can't come to Jesus and be saved. You see, Jesus didn't say to him, um, you weren't a very nice person until right now, so this day you'll be you know, sent to purgatory for a while. He didn't say that. He didn't say, well, I would love to save you, but you didn't belong to a church. I would love to save you, but you weren't baptized. Kind of interesting that those who love to call me up on, when I'm doing live radio, and, and they'll say, you have to be baptized you know, for salvation. And I'll bring up this verse, and I'll say, can you explain this to me? Well, Jesus can save whoever he wants. Jesus didn't say, sorry, you weren't baptized. This robber didn't say, you know, I wish you could save me, Lord, but I've sinned so bad that I know that you can't forgive me. You can never forgive a person like me. And maybe you're here and you feel that way. That I have sinned so much, Lord, that could you forgive somebody like me? He died for every single one of your sins. This man was being executed for his sins, for his life, for what he did. This man couldn't come to Jesus and say, I'll, I'll live for you from now on. What, for the next two hours on the cross? I'll be a good person now. He comes and he totally surrenders and he falls on the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not say that, you know, my death on the cross is not sufficient for you to be forgiven and saved. Listen, if you're here and you have not come to Jesus in Calvary, the Lord's desire is that you would simply receive and believe his work on the cross and you will be forgiven, that he rose from the grave and you throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus and you will have peace with God and the peace of God. But you've got to go to Calvary. That is where our salvation is. And in verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Jesus went to the cross. Mark tells us about the third hour. After Jesus is on the cross for three hours, all this playing out before us, and then all of a sudden it gets dark. The land goes dark. And notice that Dr. Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, says that that darkness was over all the earth until the ninth hour. Now, there have been those who always come along, the doubters of the Scripture, and trying to explain away the Word of God. They say that, well, this was just simply a local eclipse that took place. Now, we had a local eclipse, didn't we? 
that took place this summer. Some of you went up to Wyoming or Nebraska to see the full eclipse, and it lasted, what, two minutes? Didn't last for three hours. There are those who will come along and say, well, this was a sandstorm. But the thing is that we need to keep in mind as we read it very carefully here, first of all, it cannot be a solar eclipse because it's Passover. It's a full moon. You can't have a solar eclipse and a full moon. And Luke tells us that all the earth was darkened and the sun was darkened. Incredible. God who gave the sun its light now puts out that light. There are those who will come along and say, well, he's just talking about, this, the gospel writers, uh, that it's a spiritual darkness. It's just a spiritual darkness. Yeah, it was a spiritual darkness, but it was a physical darkness as well. Listen, I've been to Golgotha here several times in the middle of the day, and it is bright. That Middle Eastern sun is very bright like it is here in Colorado. And all of a sudden at noon, it goes dark here. There's no street lights. There's no, you know, light sensors that put other lights on. It is dark. We know from Exodus chapter 10 in the ninth plague that there was a darkness in Egypt, a darkness that the Bible tells us that can even be felt, and it lasted for three days. And I think, and I know that this is a supernatural darkness, and no doubt when it went dark that all of a sudden things went quiet. The mocking, the jeering, the gambling, all of a sudden it gets quiet here. And I'm sure that people could feel the darkness. There's no light. And there are historical records of this darkness that took place. The Syrian Greek historian named Phallus, 52 AD, he was alive when Christ was crucified. He writes about how the land went dark at the time of the Passover in the year 32 AD. And he writes and tries to explain it that it was an eclipse. Well, Julius Africanus, a North African church leader, he comes along in 215 AD. He quotes Phallus, and he comments that it couldn't have been an eclipse because it was the full moon. It was Passover. Flagin, a Greek historian in 131 AD, writes that on this darkness, and he would write about the Olympics and, and the history of Rome and, and Greece, and he writes that this darkness that he knows took place in the 19th year of the reign of Tiberius at the sixth hour, which would put it at this time of Jesus' crucifixion. Tertullian wrote on the darkness, and he mentions that it was official Roman record recorded and kept in the Roman archives. There are historical records that on a Passover in 32 AD at the sixth hour, the earth went dark. It was literal. It was a physical darkness, and it was prophesied by Amos hundreds of years before this. Let me read it to you. You can mark it down in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mornings and all your songs into lamentation. It's Passover feast. Amos talks about this 500 years, 600 years before it even happens. 
Darkness swallowed the earth, and it is in that darkness that Matthew records about the ninth hour that Jesus would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was at that time, and it is the only time in the synoptic gospels that Jesus addressed God without calling him father. And now he is the subject of the father's wrath as he took your sins and my sins upon himself, as he took the cup of the Father's fury. And Jesus here, the one who knew no sin, became sin for you and for me, as Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And he received the just wrath upon sin for you and for me. Jesus forsaken at this time by God, that you and I who have come to God through Jesus Christ, that we would never be forsaken. And then John tells us that Jesus would say, I thirst, that it might be fulfilled. Psalm 69, verse 21. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. He says, I thirst. Incredible. To think that the creator, 200,000 cubic feet of water, pure second going over Niagara Falls, 1.5 trillion tons of rain falls on the earth every single day. And he puts it all in place and he says, I thirst. And someone puts the vinegar on a sponge so and up to his lips so it would loosen his tongue as Psalm 22 declares that my tongue, it cleaves to my jaw. And then he would cry out three very incredible words. It is finished. Te telestai. And then all of a sudden, the light begins to return to the earth once again, and the darkness is over. Te telestai, it is finished. Paid in full is what it means. It is the cry that goes out in this place even today. That your sins, it is paid in full. The work is done. He has provided salvation and forgiveness. He has redeemed us. And now there's reconciliation between us and God. And Satan is defeated and the grave is powerless. And people have a living hope. Even as he would then say, that Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last and there was a major earthquake. And Luke here, he mentions very briefly here that in verse 45 that, that we see that all this has taken place, that the veil tore in half in the temple. It was torn. Matthew records the veil was torn from top to bottom. It would be at the ninth hour. Jesus on the cross for six hours. The earth quaked, the rocks were split. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that there was a major earthquake in Judea. Josephus also wrote that the veil there in the temple was four inches thick and a horse tied to each end could not pull it apart. Alfred Schiedheim wrote that the veil was 60 feet long 30 feet wide, the thickness of the palm of a hand. It was woven with 72 cords, each cord consisting of 24 strands, and it took 300 priests to hang that veil. You might be saying, what's the veil? The veil was that that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, from the holy place from the holy of holies. And you see, all of a sudden, it tore in half. 
Now, as you study the Old Testament in the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, that they had that veil as the priests were the only ones that were allowed to come into the temple. You see, when we go into the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is so important for us to understand. It's an incredible book. Because the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is superior. Superior. He's superior to any religious leader, Moses, anyone else. He's superior to the angels. He ministers in, in a superior you know, tabernacle, that is the heavenly tabernacle. He belongs to a superior priesthood. Uh, his death and making sacrifice for our sins was superior because the sacrifices of animals that they did that it wasn't enough to take away sin. It was a kofar, it covered sin. Until the one came, Jesus, and died once and for all. It's a phrase that we will see over and over again in the book of Hebrews. You see, if you are a Jew, you could come to the outer court and bring that sin sacrifice. You could come there to that place where they would then sacrifice that animal on behalf of you as a sin sacrifice. But only the priest, the direct descendants of Aaron, could come into the temple, and that is the holy place, where they had the shoe bread table, they had this seven-branched menorah, and then they had the altar of incense in front of that veil. Behind the veil was where the Ark of the Covenant was with the mercy seat, and the high priest was the only one that was allowed to go in on the Day of Atonement for a short time after elaborate washings and cleansings to make atonement for the nation, and he would sprinkle the blood there on the mercy seat. And when that veil, listen, tore in half, the Lord was declaring, it is finished. And the writer of Hebrews, he's writing about all this. And all of a sudden in chapter 10, he says, now you and I as believers, that we can come boldly into the holy of holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, we can come into his presence because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We can come in boldness and in confidence, not our own confidence, but in confidence in the cross. And if Aaron the high priest or any other of the high priests there in the Old Testament were here listening to this, they would say, are you serious? How incredible that you can go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. You see, that is where the tangible presence of God was. In the book of Hebrews, it's going to make the case that the old covenant had to be replaced. There were shortcomings. Again, it didn't provide forgiveness of sin as, as a final, final act. It only covered sin. And it was limited. To, it did not bring you into the presence of the Lord, only the high priest. Now you and I, and I imagine Aaron listening to that, would say, how incredible that the privileged status that we have because we can go into the Holy of Holies into the presence of the Lord anytime we want. Stay as long as we want. And we can do it as many times as we want. Don't ever take that for granted. And my hope and prayer is that the cross would affect your life in such an incredible way here today as we walk out of here that we can say, Lord, truly I am thankful. And now I can come into your presence. I want to spend a lot of time with you, especially with the holiday season coming up. When we go through the trials and difficulties, as we desire to know him, to walk with him, that we can sit at the feet and enter into his throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done and we can do it any time. The incredible work on the cross, it is.
is finished. Will you rest in that? Will you believe it? And enjoy it. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible portion of Scripture that just touches our heart to such a great degree, Lord. I pray it never loses that. And I do pray that this morning, that as we see Jesus on that cross dying for our sins, even as the, the, that robber who recognized it, that somehow, some way, Lord, if there's anyone that is here this morning that you've never come to Jesus and cried out to him to plead forgiveness in Jesus' name, and to fall on his mercy and grace and forgiveness and to know it is finished, that he did the work, he paid the price. Now you come in faith, as the Bible says, trusting in the finished work of the cross and that he rose from the grave, validating what he did. The tomb is empty. Jesus proved that he's the son of God by conquering sin and death. And if you're here, don't play games. Listen. Don't gamble with your salvation. Give your life to Jesus. He loves you. That's why he went to the cross. And he's calling you to turn to him, to recognize that you're a sinner and need to be forgiven, to call upon him, to believe in him and ask him to be your personal Lord and Savior. You can do that right now, right where you're at. And in your heart, just pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross and you cried out, it is finished and forgive me of my sins and that you're alive speaking to my heart and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me. Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to come and and have that relationship with the Father now to grow that I have that comes through you. And I thank you for this new beginning, for you hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, will you do something? Will you put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all in this place, God bless you. And God bless you guys. God bless you. I see you. Anybody else at all? Raising your hand doesn't save you. You're just saying, I've made a commitment to Christ. There may be some out in a coffee shop I don't see or in live stream that may listen to this message later on the radio. Lord, I thank you for those who have made a decision for Jesus Christ and they would know that you love them. And that love remains, that you would fill them with your love and with your spirit. And they would walk out of here as all of us rejoicing in you. I pray that you bless this Thanksgiving week. That thankfulness would just radiate from our hearts to others because of the wonderful work that Jesus did on the cross. Keep us safe, those of us who are traveling, Lord. And I pray that you would bless being with family and friends in this holiday season, this Thanksgiving weekend coming up. So, Lord, we thank you that we're here with the work that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand? God is.